0: I'm going to read this morning from Judges 8. The Israelites said to Gideon, Rule over us, you, your son, and your grandson, because you have saved us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon told them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And he said, I do have one request, that each of you give me an earring from your share of the plunder. They answered. We'll be glad to give them. So they spread out a garment, and each of them threw a ring from his plunder onto it. The weight of the gold rings he asked for came to 1,700 shekels, not counting the ornaments, the pendants, and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian or the chains that were on their camels. Camels neck, sorry. Gideon made the gold into an ephod, which he placed in Oprah, his town. All Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family this morning. If you take out your Bibles, please, with me to Judges chapter 8. It's also in your
1: bulletin for your convenience, Judges 8, beginning of the summer. Um, I thought it'd be nice to do something from the Old Testament for the month of summer, just to have like a little break a little mental break, relaxing, tell a few stories and uh, and enjoy them. And uh I wanted to do the book of Nehemiah. My wife Joanne, she wa- she thought we should do the book of Judges. So uh we're in the book of Judges. <laughs> and uh it turns out that it's it's not that light after all. And it's not that relaxing, uh, because it's, it, it, it is a brutal book, and uh, the trajectory of the book uh, is one that goes downward, and the entire book goes downward, and uh, it is basically fashioned around six stories, six major judges, and each judge is progressively worse, and uh, God's people uh, abandoned him and he sends difficulty into their lives and foreigners come in and invade and uh, subject them to oppression and take their things and uh, and so then they cry out to the Lord if all else fails pray and that's what they do and God sends a deliverer and he raises up deliverers who save the people uh, there are 13 of them altogether. Six of them have major narratives. Uh, the other ones get a sentence, and um, usually the peace and the deliverance lasts for as long as the life of the judge, and then you pre- re- you repeat the cycle. And uh, it's sad to see God's people constantly abandoning Him. And it's also a reminder to us that the church is only one generation away from non-existence. And uh, the next generation has got to find its way to the Lord all over again and come back to Him. And uh, we need constant revival and constant renewal. And uh, that is the book of Judges. Uh, The long-term, the long-term point of the book, is that as each judge comes along, in the Hebrew, they are called a deliverer, which is an, the same word for Savior. And they deliver the people, or bring victory to the people, or save the people. And that same word, moshiach is what we have in Jesus, Yeshua, the Savior. But but God eventually figured, I'm not saving anyone with human beings. They're frail, they're fragile, they're full of problems. The salvation did not work, and eventually He he sent His own Son, the perfect Savior, the perfect individual. That is the long-term trajectory of the book. That that's how it fits in the canon. Now, we're still, in, we're still in the story of Gideon. This is the fourth week. It needed six weeks to do well. We're cutting out the last two. I'm tired of Gideon. <laughs> and uh, today we're going to talk about Gideon's legacy, and it is disastrous. He has a terrible legacy. And uh, as we look about his legacy, I just want to apply it to our lives today today. Uh, there are lessons we can learn. This is a great man of God who exercised incredible faith. When God said you have too many soldiers to fight the battle, he sent 32,000 home and instead went into battle with 300. And it seems like none of them had a sword. They went into battle with a trumpet, a clay jar, and a torch. And God delivered his people without a sword so that the glory could be his. Uh, Gideon won that battle, chased the Midianites out of the country, and now we come to the end of his life. And uh, that's the story for today. If you go to the next slide there, Lynn. So Gideon's great legacy. These are the great things. First of all, uh, if you'll notice in verse... 22, the Israelites are so excited, they said to Gideon, rule over us, you, your son, and your grandson, because you have saved us out of the hand of Midian. So they want a king, and they want a dynasty. Gideon, please do that. But Gideon told them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you beautiful that's exactly what he should have said the theology is right on you don't need me you've got the Lord the Lord is the king let the Lord rule following the uh, following the revolutionary war in the United States there was actually some question Will Washington make himself a king? And a certain percentage of the population thought he would and that he should. And some of his army thought he should and would as well. And it was a surprise that the man, Washington, constrained himself to the Constitution and the process of democratic government. And then it was surprising When he left office after two terms, he could have stayed there for life. A beautiful tradition followed by most presidents since. The opportunity to reign and have it all, and yet giving it up. Gideon did that. He has his opportunity. He stays faithful to the Lord and advocates his supremacy. Number two, Gideon's great accomplishment, 40 years of peace. You see it in verse 28. Midian was subdued before the Israelites, did not raise its head again. During Gideon's lifetime, the land had peace for 40 years. 40 years of peace, 40 years of prosperity, and 40 years of not being taken advantage of. That is a great legacy. And finally, number three. Spiritual faithfulness to Yahweh, or spiritual faithfulness to the Lord. If you notice with me, verse 33. And we're going to talk about this verse again in a second. Verse 33. No sooner had Gideon died than the Israelites again prostituted themselves to the Baals. Now I'm taking this as a good thing. For now. (laughs) We'll get to the bad part in a second. But while Gideon was still alive, They were faithful to the Lord. And as soon as Gideon died, they turned away from him. So faithfulness to the Lord. And it's not just Gideon. We read the same thing was true of Joshua, that great leader of God. As long as Joshua was alive and the elders who came into the land with Joshua, they were faithful to the Lord. And as soon as Joshua died, the people turned away from the Lord. Great leadership is important. And faithfulness to God and leadership is important. Uh, why, did, why did they remain true to the Lord? I think it's because Gideon had uncommon faith. That's why he's mentioned in Hebrews 11. He had an uncommon faith. He trusted God and and, and followed him. Uh, but this sermon is about the disastrous legacy that Gideon leaves and the Gideon story is more like a tragedy and in a tragedy as you read the tragedy you love the hero and you're rooting for the hero but there are flaws in the hero that destroy him that happens to Gideon if you go to the next slide So Gideon's horrible legacy, and you see I've got four of them up there, and I want to talk about all four of those. Notice with me verse 24, and Jim read this. He said, I do have one request, that each of you give me an earring from your share of the plunder, and it was the custom of the Ishmaelites to wear gold earrings. They answered, we'll be glad to give them. So they spread out a garment. Each man threw a ring from his plunder onto it. The weight of the gold rings he asked for came to 1,700 shekels, not counting the ornaments, the pendants, the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian or the chains that were on their camels' necks. Gideon made the gold into an ephod, which he placed in Ophrah, his town. All Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. There's always some question of weights and measurements found in the Bible. They don't have the same exactness that we have today. But generally, they give you an idea. My NIV says that 1,700 shekels of gold is 43 pounds. In Canadian dollars today, that's a 1,086,000. That was based on the price of gold on Friday in U.S. money, multiplied by 1.3 so I could come to Canadian money. Now, $1,086,000, that's a good payday. <laughs> that's a good payday for Gideon. He's, I figure he's put in about one week's worth of work. And with that, God did most of the work. <laughs> Gideon didn't even have a sword at the beginning. That's a good payday. It seems that, well, let me say this. Why, why an ephod? Why take the gold and fashion it into an ephod? And I asked myself, what is an ephod, and why would he do that? And an ephod is a chest garment covered with plating, in this case gold plating. And there was one worn by the high priest in Israel. The high priest, the mediator between God and humanity. Place was sacred and unique. It seems that Gideon doesn't want to be king, but he doesn't mind being thought of as the one who goes between God and Israel. And he sets up this ephod in his hometown... And all of Israel goes there to, s- to see it. And they worship it. And it says that it becomes a snare to Gideon and his family. Earlier this year, as I opened up the shed out the back, I saw we had a mouse in the shed. And so I went to get a trap. And I went to set the trap but I'm I'm terrible at setting mouse traps. <laughs> By the way, Cliff Cliff Fraser. I don't, I don't know if Cliff wondered if I was smart enough to catch the mouse. I I, I set the trap and he he the mouse evaded it for a week, and uh, I thought that mouse is smarter than I am. But I got him eventually. But it's interesting. Is I go to set the trap, the trap went off and got my finger. Got caught by my own trap. (laughs) Uh, That's what happens to Gideon and his family with the gold ephod. He sets this up, and it becomes something that traps him and his family. It becomes a snare to them, and it actually hurts his family. He's trying to do it to help his family and do it to help his country, and it ends up hurting them and ends up, being disastrous for them that's one point number one horrible legacy number one he sets up the gold ephod they worship the ephod now by the way it seems to be very similar to what Aaron does when Moses goes up on Mount Sinai and Aaron takes the gold earrings throws them into the fire and out comes the golden calf according to Aaron right
0: (laughs) you just throw it into the fire out comes the calf
1: and Israel worships the golden calf. That's what happens with Gideon. Fashions an ephod, an ephods worn by the high priest, Israel goes there to worship. Problem number 2. I just said, I just call it the wives. Notice verse 29. Jerubbaal son of Joash, went back home to live. He had 70 sons of his own, for he had many wives. Um, Deuteronomy 17 says this. Deuteronomy 17, the law. When it talks about a king, it says, A king must not take many wives, or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. Now, please bear with my imagination. Gideon has 70 sons. Presumably, he has daughters too. I'm going to say 70 daughters. He's got 140 kids. How about that, Maria? <laughs> One hundred and forty kids. It would not be unreasonable to assume he has twenty wives, um, and he has those in a short period of time. Uh, maybe over four, fifteen years, you try to look the put it all together. 40 wives and 140 kids. I wrote this down. I said, that's expensive. <laughs> you have to have a lot of money to have, to have uh, 40 wives and 140 kids. Just the grocery bill would be enormous. The cost of putting shoes on all those kids, and of course wives like lots of shoes, I won't be a king, but I'm going to live like one. Sad. The Lord should be your king, but I'm not going to live that way. I'm going to live like I'm the king. That's how you get that many wives. People wanted to be connected to Gideon. They saw he was the most powerful, the most important. And so they were marrying their daughters to him. Takes us to number three, Abimelech. Verse 31. Gideon's concubine who lived in Shechem also bore him a son, whom he named Abimelech. A concubine is a woman who is not of sufficient status for you to marry her. She is too lowly to marry. So she's just a mistress. So now Gideon also has a mistress with whom he has another child. And the name of this child is Abimelech. The name Abimelech means my father is king. Ab is father. That little I, Abi, is my father. Melech is Hebrew word for king. His son's name is my father is king. Why would you name your son that? In fact, you know the story of uh, um, Isaac and the story of Abraham, and uh, they actually run into a king named Abimelech. And Abimelech is a name that kings had because it was a dynasty name. Abimelech means my father's king, and so it became a dynastic name. I'm going, Gideon, what are you doing? The story of Abimelech is an abysmal story. Abimelech eventually says to the town of Shechem, Why have Gideon's family rule over you? My mom's from Shechem. Make me your king. Shechem does. Gideon hires himself an army. And he goes and kills all of Gideon's sons. Sixty-nine of them, slaughtered. The youngest one escapes. Eventually, Shechem and Abimelech don't get along. So Abimelech attacks Shechem, wipes out many of them. And as he goes to siege another town, a woman drops a millstone on his head. As he's lying there injured, Abimelech says to his servant, kill me because I don't want it said that a woman killed me. His servant kills him. The end of Abimelech. That's a disastrous legacy. What a mess. What a mess. The man who would not be king ended up with a son who made himself king because he saw that a dad who lived like a king. Um, I've got one negative illustration and then I've got a couple positive illustrations in the next section. Negative illustration. Uh, Bill Hybels. Bill Hybels, one of the most influential Christian leaders in North America in the past 30 years. Uh, Probably the most influential for, for the way he affected churches and changed how churches do business. I would say he's the most influential. Way more influential than Billy Graham. And uh, Bill Hybels spearheaded the seeker-sensitive church, and his church, Willow Creek, became one of the largest in Chicago and one of the most influential around the world. And the good that came out of that church was tremendous. And a lot of good still comes out of that church. I highly recommend Lee Strobel's books on, on apologetics, and Lee Strobel's came out of that church. Uh, what was most remarkable about bill hybels was his transparency and uh, his transparency and accountability and you would hear him speak and it would just it would be thrilling but if you've been following the news bill hybels is in trouble uh, the lies and deception and the indiscretion marital unfaithfulness down through the years the stories at first were just weird but now they've turned out to be real acts of sin. To give you an illustration of the weirdness, uh, he was doing a writing a, a book, and Zondervan was publishing the book, and uh, the chief editor of Zondervan and the president of Zondervan was editing his book, and Bill Hybels was I think he was on the West Coast and he was flying somewhere, and uh, the chief editor of Zondervan was there, a woman. And so he said, fly with me on my private jet, and we'll work on the book. And she said to him, well, my husband's here with me. Can he come too? Because he needs to get a flight too. And Bill Heibel said, no, your husband can't come. Let him get a commercial flight. And I thought, how weird is that? First of all, it's not even very Nice. And it's just weird that you want to spend time alone with this woman and specifically make sure that her husband doesn't come on your private jet. Just weird things like that. Some things were worse. The church is in trouble. This past week, there have been stories on the front page of the Chicago Tribune and New York Times. The teaching pastor has resigned. The executive pastor has resigned. Bill Hybels had already resigned. And now the entire board has resigned. What once was so promising for the cause of God and for Christ is now just another huge black mark. Disappointing and so discouraging. So discouraging as you read about the private jets, the private boats, the private cottages, the traveling, and the bad bad things that happened when his wife was away. That's what we're reading about with Gideon. Finally, the spiritual prostitution. The spiritual prostitution. Verse 33. No sooner had Gideon died than the Israelites again prostituted themselves to the Baals. They set up Baal Bereath as their god did not remember the lord their god who had rescued them from the hands of all their enemies on every side they also failed to show kindness to the family of jerubbaal for all the good things he had done for them gideon's name changed to jerubbaal let baal defend himself that's what the name means let baal contend for himself and now as soon as gideon dies what god do they turn to baal In fact, they call him Baal-Berit. Baal, the God of the covenant. That's what Berit means. The Lord of the covenant. Baal of the covenant. Baal is the one who's faithful to me. Baal's the one who looks after me. Baal's the one who takes after me. Listen to this. This is Genesis. God talking with Abraham. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. I will make my covenant between you, between me and you, and will greatly increase your numbers. As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram, the, fa- the, the exalted father. Your name will be Abraham, the father of many. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for generations to come. An everlasting covenant. That's our God. Establishes an everlasting covenant with us. But we are so fickle. I asked, what is spiritual prostitution? When I serve the God of my choice that helps me the most. That is spiritual prostitution. My affections are always up for sale. Whatever helps me the most, I will love and worship. Now we live in a postmodern world, a post-Christian society. The average person on the street, and we ourselves tend to think this way. It's kind of drummed into you. It's our culture. The idea is What is true is what helps me. And what helps me the most is what is truthful. So if magic crystals help me, I'm going to believe in magic crystals. And if Christianity helps you, that's great. I'm glad it helps you. It doesn't help me. Truthfulness is what helps me. That's spiritual prostitution. Whatever gives me a good payday today, that's the religion for me. In the 1500s, Calvin, one of the first reformers, he began a school in Geneva, and he wanted to win the French, and he sent missionaries to France from Geneva and from Switzerland. And many French went to Geneva to be trained at the academy. And as they went back to France, a Roman Catholic country, they were persecuted, and many of them lost their lives. In fact, we can go back and look at how many went to school and how long they lived. The life expectancy for graduates of the, of the academy in Geneva was six months. Six months. Imagine putting that on your recruiting for for a school. Come and study with us for four years and you can live for six months afterwards. We have records of Calvin's family receiving widows in the night. Their husbands were killed in their own homes before their eyes and they didn't know where to turn and they went back to Geneva to where their teacher lived and they received comfort from their former teacher. How different from our day? Our day when our affection's for sale, whatever helps me most, and whatever gets me the best life, that's what I want. One person tells about the establishment of the church in Kenya. For the first 30 years of missionary work, first, first 30 years in Kenya, more missionaries died then people came to Christ. Imagine trying to sell that as a missionary agency. We want to send 100 people to Kenya so that 100 of you die and we get 50. In fact, when missionaries went to Kenya, they went with their contents stored in coffins. That was their luggage. Because they were resigned to the fact that they would never make it back out to the coast, and they were going there to die. And they kept at it, knowing their efforts would someday bear fruit. Well, today, Kenya is 82% Christian. Now, that's nominal Christian. But 82% of Kenyans would say, I follow Jesus Christ. People are so fickle. And I wonder in our own lives, are we spiritual prostitutes? I'm afraid that today many Christians in the world fall in that that broad category. I was just talking to uh, Terry Hopman last night about prosperity theology, a major problem in the world. A lot of Christians are teaching that. That if you follow Jesus, you're going to be healthy and wealthy. And people are lapping it up. Who wouldn't want that? That's spiritual prostitution. Let's just take a watered down version of the Bible and leave the hard stuff alone. And let's just go for the good stuff. We don't have a savior that is like that we follow a savior who lost his life and suffered that's what we can expect I think that's what's going to happen in our lives if you're faithful to Jesus it's going to be hard (laughs) and it's going to hurt and you're going to be persecuted that's the message for the church that's the opposite of spiritual prostitution